Our sermon text for today is an unusually long passage of 67 verses, so we're just going to break it up a little bit, starting at Acts 6-8 and reading through to chapter 7, verse 60, and including Stephen's speech. So please read along with us on the screen or in your Bible. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Now transitioning to Acts 7, verse 1. And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length. He promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him, and rescued him out of all of his afflictions, and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him rule over Egypt and over all his household. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt, until there arose over Egypt another king, who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight, and Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was forty years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian. Now when forty years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, and of Isaac, and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for forty years. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt. 
Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it. So it was unto the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God, and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so did you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. Yet who, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and they rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. This is the word of God. Good morning, everyone. Pastor John Dennis here. And uh, what an amazing text that we have before us. Last week, I began by saying we live in these unprecedented times, and you could say the same thing again today. Um, of course, just over a week ago, the Capitol being stormed by protesters and being broken into this week, uh, our president being impeached for the second time, and uh, plans being made now for the inauguration for the National Guard to be present there. Times of uncertainty. Last week, I spoke on a house divided and on the idea that the church in the midst of divisive times has to fight for its unity, that sometimes the fissures that are outside the church can come in and begin to fracture, and that the antidote to that, the cure to that really is finding spirit-filled leaders who will be the ones who will serve the church and re-examining and recommitting to priorities, not just the priorities of proclaiming the gospel, but keeping that prayer and ministry of the word right at the center, but also having an eye of compassion for those who are the neediest within the community. Today, the question that I want to ask is a very simple one and a personal one, which is, for many of you in the midst of this uncertainty, how do you have hope in the midst of uncertainty? And one of the ways to do that really is to find people who seem to have a kind of confidence or hope and begin to emulate their lives. I'll take as an example, the life of Johnny Erickson. There's a spot where she talks about um, what it was like to try to live with the uncertainty of her broken neck. Johnny Erickson Tata broke her neck in a diving accident in 1967 when she was 17 years old. Imagine that. 
in the midst of one's youth, all of the hopes and dreams that you might have for yourself swept away. She says, I broke my neck in a diving accident in 1967 and suddenly I was thrust into this uncomfortable and alien word. She writes at the beginning of this book, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, which is about discovering the grace of lament. She says, when a broken net am neck ambushed my life and left me a quadriplegic, I felt as though God had smashed me underfoot like a cigarette. Anyone else ever felt like your life was somehow being snuffed out? She said, at night I would thrash my head on the pillow hoping to break my neck at a higher level and thereby end my ministry. And after I left the hospital, I refused to get out of bed. She says, she told her sister, just close the drapes turn out the light, shut the door. Her paralysis was permanent and inside she said she died. And then after weeks and weeks in bed, she says, I got tired and depressed. And I finally cried out, God, if I can't die, please show me how to live. In other words, in times of depression and discouragement or uncertainty, there are people who can show us how to live. Who will show us how to live in the isolation of a pandemic? Who will show us how to live in a culture that seems to have lost its moorings? Who will show us how to live? This summer I read a book on leadership by Doris Kern Goodwin in which she examines uh, a number of presidents and the way that they responded to the challenges of their time questions like this in the book. Are leaders born or made? When it, where does ambition come from? But this one in particular, how does adversity affect the growth of leadership? Namely, it shapes it. Her book is on leadership in turbulent times. And friends, we are in turbulent times. So what do we need? We often need to look beyond ourselves in the midst of uncertainty to see someone, <laughs> to emulate and today we are presented with the picture of someone who is in as uncertain of a moment as you could possibly imagine, Stephen. And the author, Luke, gives us this picture in Acts 6, 8, all the way through chapter 7, verse 60, in order to show us as the early church is just being born and is being pressed in by conflict and by adversity. It's giving us a picture of what the church should look like, how the church should live. And in one sense, the, the, the simple answer from Stephen of how to find hope in the times of uncertainty is his eyes were fixed on the person of Jesus who is reigning over all. Really, all I want to do today is just show you that not only can we learn how to live from someone who lives well, but we can also learn how to live from someone who dies well. And Stephen died not like a cigarette being crushed out, but he died like one being crowned with glory because his name, Stephen, literally means crowned. This is a picture of Stephen as a life that is an unlikely life that is worth emulating. And so I'm going to ask you to consider with me how Stephen's life was filled with Jesus and spoke with Jesus 
and that he died for Jesus, and therefore it is one that is worth emulating. I'm going to ask you to bow with me in prayer, and uh, I'll, I'll just open us and ask for God's mercy. Father in heaven, help us to find direction in the midst of our distraction, to find courage in the midst of our despair, to find certainty in the midst of our confusion. Lord, we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Just a word of context for those of you who are not familiar with the book of Acts. At the very beginning of the book, the disciples, after Jesus has risen from the dead and is teaching them for a number of days, they come and they say to him, is this the time that you're going to do your kingdom thing, Jesus? Are you going to restore the kingdom now to Israel? And Jesus says, look, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons, but you will be my witnesses. And you'll have power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And part of what Luke is claiming at this point in chapter six and seven, at this key moment, is that even though the opposition will rise, even though martyrs like Stephen may fall, the kingdom will continue to grow in the face of that. And that's a message that is intended to all who read about the story of the first century church and how it was birthed, to understand that whatever difficulties may come, the kingdom of Jesus will not fail. Stephen shows us how to live for Jesus. And I'm just gonna show you three, three reasons why his life is worthy of emulating. He's worthy to emulate because of his life itself. That's chapter six, verses eight to 15. Because of his words, that's chapter seven. The, almost the whole thing, chapter 7, verse 1 to verse 53, and then because of his death. Stephen gives us a life that is worth emulating. Number one, because he was filled with Jesus. Look at what it says in chapter 6 and verse 8 when it starts to describe him. It says, Stephen is full of grace and of power and doing wonders and signs among the people. How is he able to do that? We already actually know from the previous section when they were looking for people to have compassion upon the widows who were being overlooked, it says that they chose individuals who were full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. And Stephen is the first one who is named. He's filled with the presence of Jesus. And they anoint him so that they can continue in their priorities of prayer in the ministry of the word. And so here he is now speaking with this fullness of Jesus. Chapter 6, verse 10 says the same thing. When these people rise up and they begin to bring accusations against him, it says, verse 10, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. He was filled with Jesus to such a point that it says at the end of uh, chapter 6, it says that he's gazing at them all. All who sat in the council saw that he, his face was like that of an angel. And what it means most likely is that it has this sense of glory that he's emanating with. I want you to keep your Bibles open and look at chapter seven. We're at the very end because not only is he filled with Jesus, but his life is worth emulating because his eyes are on Jesus. I was sitting with a congregant this week and we were talking about some of the challenges in our country and some of the ways that it's so hard to all remain together within the church when people have such different perspectives on one another. And we were talking and 
The individual just said, I want to know like that we're all rowing together. What are we rowing towards? And I, I said, well, we're rowing towards Christ. That's who we are rowing towards. And if, if you've ever been out in the waters kayaking or uh, in a rowboat, you keep your eyes on something on the horizon. And chapter seven says that Stephen full of the Holy Spirit, is gazing into heaven and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. I'm using this as an image, but he literally looked up to heaven and where most of the scriptures picture Jesus as seated at the right hand of God. It's as if Jesus has stood up to welcome Stephen, this man who's full of the Spirit, into heaven and Stephen says, verse 56, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And this is when they crush him. So here is a man that is worthy of emulating in the midst. Think of how intense his uncertainty was at that moment as they are rising up with accusations against him. What keeps him steady? He has full confidence in Christ. And it's not just in Christ. It's in the kingdom that Christ is bringing. That's what he's seeing is Jesus ruling. Friends, this is what the church needs in this hour, not just unity. We need unity together, yes. And that unity comes by Christ, but we need hope. The Roman Empire fell. America could fall, but the kingdom of heaven will not fall and cannot fall. So look at Stephen as a life worth emulating for hope in the midst of uncertainty. The second thing I want to show you about Stephen's life being worth emulating is not only that he was filled with Jesus, with wisdom, with grace, and with power, has his eyes on Jesus, but also he speaks for Jesus. He tells the story of Jesus. And Part of the way I need you to think about this is that every one of us has a story that has shaped us. And what, what Stephen is doing here is presenting to these people who are speaking against him and attacking him at this moment. He begins to speak the story, really, of Jesus. And I just need you to see the context here of what happens. We've already seen that he's full of grace and wonder, but then it says in verse 9 that some of those who belong to the synagogue of the freedmen and the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians, those from Sicilia, Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen, but they weren't able to hold their own with him. And then they secretly instigated, this is what happened, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people, this is verse 12 of chapter 6, and the elders and scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council, and they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law, for we have heard him say, listen to this, that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy that place and change the customs that Moses delivered to us, and gazing at them all, who sat in the council, saw that his face was like the face of an angel, and the high priest said, are these things so? And Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. And what he does is tell the story of Jesus. And it's a long story. It's a meandering story in some ways. Uh, John Stott humorously points out that George Bernard Shaw in his preface to Androcles and the Lion 
said that Stephen was quite an intolerable young speaker, a tactless and conceited bore. And if you have read the speech, you might feel like that a little bit as well until you begin to understand what it's about. He says, he's delivered an oration to the council in which he inflicted on them a tedious sketch of the history of Israel with which they were presumably as well acquainted as he. And what he's really doing is saying that his life has been primarily shaped with this particular story. And he tells it really, in even though it's long and meandering, there's really just three sections to it, or three emphases or themes to it. One is the people of God, God's people. That is Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses and David and Solomon. That's one of his themes. And he just traces the history and the promises that were given to Abraham but he never, that Abraham never realized. The promises that were spoken to Moses. So it's about God's people, it's about God's place and the land, that is, but specifically the temple and where God lives because the accusation is that he's speaking against the temple. And the third thing is after God's people, after God's place is really about God's work, the law itself. And what he says essentially about the law is that they have received the law are privileged to be descended from this people group, and yet they have not only rejected the law, they've killed the prophets that have come before them. So his first emphasis is on God's people. His second one really is on God's place, which you can think of as not just the promised land, but the temple in particular. And his answer at the conclusion of his sermon is very simple. He says that God does not need a place to live. Think of it this way. He says, yet the most high does not dwell in houses made by hands for the prophet says, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me? Says the Lord. What is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all of these things? If God stretches out his feet and places them on the earth, or if God stretches his arms past the boundaries of the universe, if he has decorated his home with stars and warmed his hands on the light of the sun, then how are you possibly going to build a home for him? See, friends, what we tend to do and what they were doing was trying to shrink God down to this size of a God that could dwell in the temple. And so if the temple was destroyed, then the presence of God would be destroyed. In contemporary terms, it's a little bit like us saying, all you need to do is ask Jesus into your heart as if to say that Jesus will somehow become this tiny entity. No, you repent and you surrender to Jesus as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, as the ever-living one and the everlasting one. Yes, you see, Jesus said that he would destroy the temple because he would become the temple. Friends, it's wrong theology for us to think that a building can possibly hold a modern church building. We long to be together, but God does not dwell in that building. God dwells in his people. And he's in his people wherever we are located, whether we are connecting by Zoom or we are connecting face to face, God's presence is in his people. To the Jews, the idea of the presence of God meant the 
guaranteed protection of God. If the temple was in their land, they were protected. But if the temple were ever, ever to be destroyed, then they would be judged by God. And so in one sense, modern Jews without a temple feel, continue to feel, those who are religious feel this loss. So what he's saying is that God's people, Abraham, never actually had the chance to be in God's place. He, even though he was promised not a temple to Abraham, but a land that he would inherit. It says that Abraham actually never even owned one foot of it. Not one foot. It says in chapter 7, verse 5, he said he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to his possession and to his offspring after him, even though he never had a child. And Moses, think of it. Moses never entered the promised land. Moses never got to see the temple. David longed to build the temple. He never got to build the temple, even though he wrote songs like Psalm 21 about the temple itself. He never got to see it. And so David wondered why he didn't get to see the place and build the place. But part of the thing is that God doesn't live there. That's what the text is saying, is that heaven is his throne. He's, God's an outdoors guy. Not an indoors guy. You cannot confine God to a building. You cannot confine God to a heart. You cannot confine God to an ideological party. You cannot confine God to one people group, not even to the Jews, not to America. He is not a national God. God is bigger than America. God is bigger than our, our political ideologies, friends. This text is saying, let God be God. And every man be a liar. So God's people had really never had a place, not Abraham, not Joseph, not Moses, not David, only Solomon. But also God doesn't need a place. He's already decorated the universe as his place of divine inhabitation. So what, what uh, Stephen is saying as he's speaking the words of Jesus is that God's people never really had a place that was permanent, many of them. God doesn't need a place. And then he goes on, not to God's place, not to God's people, but to God's word. And essentially the argument is this. To these leaders, these individuals who worship in the synagogue, who hold Moses up to be so high, he says to them, do you remember that moment when Moses heard the voice in the burning bush and that God spoke to him and told him, God spoke to Moses and told him, go and deliver my people. And he went once to deliver his people. And then he was spoken to in a way where they said, are you going to be our ruler and redeemer? Or are you just going to kill us like you killed that other person that you killed? The point is this that the people of God had rejected the prophets of God. They'd rejected the word of God. They'd rejected Moses and his word and his law. What Stephen is doing is saying that the promise of a place, the dwelling of a temple, the giving of the law, were all pointing to the one that he calls 
in chapter 7, in his conclusion, the righteous one. Verse 52, he says, They killed the one who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered. And you received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Friends, Stephen's life is worth emulating because he was filled with Jesus' wisdom. His eyes were on Jesus, but he's also worthy of emulating because he told and believed with all his heart the story of Jesus. Listen to how he concludes. You feel a little bit like, Stephen, bring a little bit of tact here. Listen to verse 51. You stiff-necked people uncircumcised in hearts and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. He's caught to the quick that they will not listen to the message of Jesus. He says, as your fathers did, so do you. Which of your fathers did your, sorry, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed the one who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you now have betrayed and murdered. You received the law as by angels and did not keep it. In other words, he holds to the story that Jesus is a man of sorrows. In fact, he holds to it so tightly that it takes him through his affliction. We sang a little bit earlier, man of sorrows, lamb of God, by his own betrayed, that's what's happening here. The sin of man and wrath of God has on Jesus been laid. You see, it's through his betrayal that he actually rescues us. It's a message of grace. Oh, that rugged cross, my salvation, where your love poured out over me. Now my soul cries out, hallelujah, praise and honor unto thee. You see, Johnny Erickson Tata could have easily rejected the message of God because of her affliction and what she did instead. If she said, no, I'm going to go to the one who was afflicted on our behalf. She says, from then on, after she said, God, if I can't die, please show me how to live. She said, from then on, I would ask my sister to get me up and park me in my wheelchair in front of my Bible. She's holding to the story, holding a stick in my mouth. I would flip this way and that, looking for answers, any answers. And I sought the help of a Christian counselor friend of me who took me directly to the book of Lamentations. He showed me the third chapter, which says, I am the man who has seen affliction. Surely God against me turns his hand again and again the whole day long. And I marveled thinking that's me. What she's saying is that God came to her in her affliction and met her in her affliction. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, of course, famously said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. You see, the death of Stephen tells us that Jesus and his kingdom will outlast and outlive and outreign every institution. All the prophets knew affliction, the righteous one knew affliction, the church must be willing to joyfully embrace affliction. You know, uh, there is a sense of uncertainty as we've already talked about today in our culture. And uh, there's great concern over where we are going. I read an article this week uh, that a congregant gave to me, which says, for, for decades, sociologists have warned just how thin American civil society 
has become replaced by a growing individualism that isolates Americans from the relationships and loyalties that once nurtured a thick social fabric. This is an unsustainable path, listen to this, the collapse of the family, the declining church attendance, institutions losing their integrity and our trust in the various technological vortices, keeping us from our neighbors are all catalytic factors in what's been rightly called deaths from despair including suicide rates, loneliness, addictions, and could also be called acts of desperation. And then the author goes on to say that it is these institutions like the church that must hold to their story in the midst of the affliction and give a vision that is beyond merely our own sense of happiness and our own sense of entitlement in this world. Let me come to conclusion. Stephen's life in the midst of uncertainty is a life that is still filled with hope. And Stephen lived his life full with Jesus. Stephen spoke for Jesus. And Stephen also gave his life for Jesus. Listen to what it says at the end of chapter 7. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. One pastor in commenting on this text says, you know something's wrong when someone's brows are furrowed in the congregation or someone is nodding to, the, nodding to sleep. But when they start to grind their teeth, you know you're in trouble. It says, but he full of the Holy Spirit gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him, and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he cried out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then these remarkable words at the end, and listen to what it says. And falling to his knees, he cried with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Stephen, his life was taken from him, and yet in his life, as it drained away, his hope was in Christ all the way to the end, such that he could say that he wanted his enemies to be forgiven. Don't you want to live well? Don't you want to die well? Find someone to inspire you. Johnny Erickson Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Stephen, the Lord Jesus, in showing us how to die, people like Stephen show us how to live. Brothers and sisters, Luke is telling us that opposition will rise and martyrs will fall, but that nothing can stop the progress of the kingdom of God, that it goes on and that it goes on. You see, friends, the true church is the one that keeps its eyes on Jesus. The true church is the one that faithfully proclaims Jesus and the story of God. The true church is the one that in the face of opposition says, come what may, has love even for her enemies. What America needs the most right now, what our neighborhood needs the most right now, what our city needs the most right now, is people that are full of Jesus people who have their eyes on Jesus, people who will live well, 
who will speak well, people who will die well. So Holy Trinity, we love you. May you live well. May you speak well of Jesus and may you, when it is your turn, die well. We're gonna sing, your name is a strong and mighty tower. Your name is a shelter like no other. Brothers and sisters, I encourage you, if you don't know the Lord Jesus, to stop running from him, to come to him, and to embrace him as the suffering servant who gave his life for all. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Our Father in heaven, thank you that your name is a strong and mighty tower in the midst of uncertainty. Give us the hope that Stephen had, that Johnny Erickson Tata had, that Bonhoeffer had when he gave his life as a martyr. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.